Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Let me tell you a story about a brick. A 3,000-year-old brick. It was made from mud and water from the Tigris River and dried in the sun before becoming part of a palace built for King Ashurnasirpal of Assyria. But in this brick was a little crack where remnants of plant life remained, a genetic secret locked away in a single brick. Fast forward to 2023, where a team of research scientists in Denmark were able to establish that the plants included cabbage, birch, and cultivated grasses. They did it using ADNA, ancient DNA. But DNA-based technologies and analysis aren't just helping us understand how people and plants lived long ago. These techniques are helping us track biodiversity in the environment, develop seed varieties that can better adapt to climate change, and treat debilitating diseases. So this time on Spark, surprising new uses for DNA tech and the deep questions they raise for our human future. I say DNA, what do you think of? It's okay if you automatically think of human beings passing on genetic traits through generations, person to person. But it isn't just about us humans, and it's not just about how you got that dimpled chin or deep voice. All the living organisms leave some of their biological material behind in the environment, and that includes their DNA. Yep, we leave our DNA behind just going about our business. So uh, this could be, you know, we are sitting in a room and uh, we sweat, you know, our sweat has some uh, of our DNA in it. We shed some hair or uh, some cells in our body, so it's part of the natural process. My name is Merdad Hajibubai. I'm an associate professor of integrative biology at the University of Guelph. I'm also the founder and CSO of a startup company uh, based in St. John's, Newfoundland called eDNA Tech. For the past couple of decades, Merdad's been working on a molecular diagnostic tool to analyze the DNA that's left behind in the environment and identify what species are present. Just like the way that we diagnose diseases, you know, using genetic tests, we use these for uh, understanding how ecosystems and environments are changing. By identifying the DNA of the plants and animals in a given location, Merdad can track things like biodiversity. But how do they actually go about analyzing environmental DNA? Within our genome, like the DNA of us and all the animals, plants, microbes, everything, there are segments of the genes that are quite specific to that organism, which means that their sequence, these building blocks of DNA, ACGT sort of nucleotides, they are quite specific. And a few years ago, uh, scientists, including our group and others, we discovered that using these specific elements, we can basically recognize the species. These little genetic snippets are called DNA barcodes. 
So if we access these DNA barcodes within the environmental DNA, then basically from the environmental samples like water and soil or air, we can identify the organisms that are in that environment. Does that mean that you're basically, so you have something from the environment and you're kind of comparing it to sort of a known sample and seeing if this is a match? Yeah, exactly. So uh, for the past uh, couple of decades, we've been gathering these DNA barcodes through genomic sequencing of organisms, and then we're putting them in the reference in reference libraries. But there's many cases we don't have a reference. We still can use uh, computer algorithms to basically say, hey, look, I know that I don't have this species, but I have something close related. So it's not this butterfly, but it's a butterfly, uh, you know, so uh, without being able to put a name on it, it might be a new species that we didn't encounter in the past, okay. or it may be one that we have not uh, got a reference for yet. But this seems like just wild that you can actually do this. Like, say you take a pail and you scoop up a bunch of water in the pail like there would be all kinds of plants and and organisms that have been through that how do you how does it not end up being just like so much noise well it, it is uh, quite like when i started doing this i thought oh is this possible even uh, but i mean like there's a lot of technologies in our disposal that we can use part of it is uh the new molecular biology sort of view. Typically, you probably, when you imagine molecular biology labs like test tubes and sort of these images of uh, electrophoresis gels, you know, CSI type. Right, but right. these have, have all changed. Everything now it ha happens within microfluidics, nanofluidics scale, really, really small microscopic scale, what we call next generation sort of sequencing devices that we have. They can basically process uh, these molecules that are floating, let's say, in that water that you got in parallel. You know, they can process millions of them, and then uh, they can uh, separate the signal from the noise. This is all uh, engineering, basically, and uh, microfluidics and electronics. And, and then we use computer tools. There's a lot of computer technology that goes into this business, which is deciphering and making sense of these uh, millions of sequences that we get. Uh, billions, even. I mean, the new machines produce about up to 10 billion sequences. And and then here comes a checklist of uh, this, your species from bacteria and viruses all the way to uh, mammals and higher organisms. So that's, that's the work of an uh, area we call bioinformatics. You probably have heard that term, which is uh, analyzing biological information, mostly genomics information using uh, computer. So would you have been able to do this analysis like 15 years ago, or is it how much of it is that the technology has caught up to, to what you need in order to do this? It was totally impossible. Uh, I mean, like 15 years ago, we knew that we were heading this way when we started the barcoding, but this environmental DNA essentially sort of started around 2000. Eight, nine-ish, and then it started taking shape uh, around 2012, uh, where we published a special issue of uh, one of our journals calling it Environmental DNA. And then since then, it's been really rapidly evolving in different angles, both scientifically and, and for socioeconomic applications as well. Yeah, so can we talk about that? What are some of the applications of this approach? There are a wide range of applications. So we are in demand of biodiversity information all the time. A simple example is infectious diseases, you know, and organisms that are harmful to us, like invasive species. Detection, 
and early detection is always important and needed. So some of these organisms, you know, like they're elusive, they're really hard to find, but they leave their DNA behind in the environment. So by accessing that information, we can say, hey, look, there's a high probability that I don't see these invasive, you know, carp fish here or this invasive plant, but I see the DNA of it here. So there's a very high chance that it's here. So that's one uh, would be to track these sort of targets that we need. The other one is, in general, we need to understand how healthy our ecosystems are, especially as a consequence of climate change or uh, what we do uh, in terms of using natural resources and land use and agriculture. We all we need to understand how biodiversity may be influenced. And it's been really challenging. But environmental DNA can, as you said, you scoop up a couple of liters of the water from the ocean or go to a soil, a site near an agricultural site. And you just want to see how these uh, ecosystems are changing. And then you can use that information. There are lots of uh, applications that basically fall into these two categories that I explained to you. You can, for example, analyze the diet of organisms, you know, like what, what they consume, which is part of the ecological logical sort of procedures that they belong to. And uh, fisheries, for example, mm. a stock assessment is a huge uh, issue, you know, for us to know, especially in Canada, you know, like we need to know if we are harvesting a lot of uh, or, uh, resources in the ocean and we, we don't have uh, really easy ways of doing it. Environmental DNA provides a lot of potential in those areas as well. So for something like the fisheries example, could you use this technology not just to assess, say, is a particular species here, but how plentiful is the species in this area? It is getting there as well. I mean, like, this is sort of quantification and understanding, you know, like, how many of, a, of an organism is there is always uh, challenging. Uh, but we are building, uh, as we're building environmental DNA tools, we're also building a statistical models to how to make sense of this data quantitatively. And it's progressing quite well. I mean, like, it's a DNA, so it's not going to tell you the number of counts of fish, but tells you, for example, a number that corresponds to biomass, which is more important even. So how much biomass of this species, uh, for example, is in this part of our sampling area in the ocean versus the other parts? And then we can build management programs based on that, sustainability plans based on that, and, uh, and then we, we move forward. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to me just a bit more about the implications in understanding the impacts uh, of climate change? Yes. So, uh, so as we know, I mean, climate change is influencing our ecosystems and organisms, uh, that reside in an ecosystem. They typically, uh, in the past, we have been relying on, let's say, a count or estimate of a very small number of organisms, you know, like a canary in the cold mine type things, you know, mm -hmm. so you go in and it, okay, this species is changing. So we extrapolate, you know, like everything else based on that. Now, Conceptually, that's not uh, necessarily correct because organisms respond differently to the environment. Not every organism, for example, is sensitive to the change in temperature or climate or uh, resources such as water. So uh, what environmental DNA is doing, it allows us in almost near real time to uh, measure these. With environmental DNA, the process is so simple. It can be scaled up uh, using automation. We can even use citizens 
scientists, you know, like people, you know, to go in and get these samples and then send it to us. We have a national program currently on fresh water. Huh. And yeah, so it's, uh, it's uh, helping in, uh, in many different ways to track actually what's going on in these uh, ecosystems as a consequence of climate change and other issues. You are listening to Spark. This is Spark. This is Spark. From CBC. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about how environmental DNA offers the potential to reveal insights about biodiversity, climate change, and how resource industries can operate more sustainably. Right now, my guest is Merdad Hajibubai, a professor and researcher in molecular biology, genomics, and bioinformatics, specifically looking at environmental DNA. And so where do you see some of the challenges or limitations of this type of technology? Well, you know, with, with all the new technologies, obviously comes challenges in implementing them. I was just reading uh, about, for example, forensic DNA. Now, we know that DNA is used in forensic, you know, in crime scenes and so on, but that didn't come instantly. It took a long time, you know, like for the legal system to accept uh, evidence from the DNA. Same thing is kind of happening. We are working with regulatory bodies to try to educate them. Uh, if it was five years ago, I was less optimistic, but now I'm very optimistic because we have done a lot of pilot projects. We just have established a standardization body for eDNA. Uh, like, you know, these technologies need to come out of the artisanal and one-off into a system that they can be used and be regulated. And we're working with agencies in Canada, in U.S. and internationally to bring those uh I would say the frameworks that we need for effective uptake, and we're almost there. I mean, we have some applications now. We have some that is coming. Uh, but I would say that uh, in general, uh, I like to see more receptivity, especially, you know, we, we have learned uh, something uh, after COVID, which is some of the solutions cannot be perfect before we use them. Remember those diagnostic tests that we used in the COVID time? Mm -hmm. They were not perfect, but we started using them, and uh, I think they were good enough to help us get out of the crisis. We are facing a, a crisis with biodiversity loss and, and our environmental uh, sort of changes uh, in the planet. So environmental DNA is one of those solutions that I, I think is really good enough and is much more superior than what we have currently. Mm -hmm. There has been speculation about the potential of this technology to identify people, either in the context of a police investigation or it's been speculated in the context of surveilling certain populations. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, there is definitely potential for those applications that you mentioned, but I haven't seen a lot of investment and a lot of big studies. Thus far, mostly, I think the focus has been on uh, wild organisms, wild animals, you know, and biodiversity at large. But I would say in time, we need to protect uh, our societies from uh, misuse of these technologies as well. And that's, I think, that mostly the, uh, the job of the regulators. And first of all, they need to be educated, and then we need to think 
about how can we uh, use these technologies in an effective way so that we may not interfere with people's privacies, you know, and those things. But from that standpoint, I mean, we can always think about a positive way of using these technologies. And for environmental DNA, that's huge. So where would you like to see this technology and this approach go in the future? I would like to be able to either through this technology, which has a huge potential, or in general, I like to see biodiversity being measured, just like we measure temperature, you know, or pH, you know, biological side of our environment has been kind of like a black box. You know, we haven't had a good chance and, and good tools. We've been avoiding it because of the difficulty. Environmental DNA and some of the other technologies are changing this paradigm. Uh, I would say that the marginal cost of measuring uh, environmental DNA, especially in, uh, for example, if you send a big uh, vessel in the ocean, the cost of operating that vessel is a lot more than just getting a sample of water and getting a DNA and then putting it in a database and uh, and letting the scientific community and all the stakeholders access that and use that for all these applications that we just discussed. So I would like this to become a routine analysis. I also look like to see more resources being devoted in, as I mentioned, the policy side and uptake and fair use of this technology. And, and, and ultimately, I think that it should become part of the commodities, you know, like offerings by commercial sector, by industries, and and so on, uh, uh, and not stays within just the research uh, and academic environments. Hmm. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Merdad Hajibubai is an Associate Professor of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're looking at innovation in DNA-based technologies and how that may help sustainability. We just heard how we can use these tools to better understand biodiversity. Can we use our understanding of plant DNA to grow crops that adapt to climate change? Research is looking into whether gene editing technology like CRISPR can play a role. And for that, we're going to head to the Canadian prairies. Farming is an interesting place to understand how technology can be developed, taken up and used, and, and what the impacts are, because we can see it happening in real time. We can talk about drugs, we can talk about IT, but most of that happens behind closed doors and we just see little snippets of what's happening. Agriculture is almost totally transparent. This is Peter Phillips, a distinguished university professor emeritus of public policy at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm interested in how we can produce enough food to feed the world without having knock-on effects on the environment and our quality of life. I live in Saskatchewan and we have 40-some percent of Canada's agricultural lands. And so we're big players in this. 
So how would you characterize the challenge that climate change presents to, to agriculture in the sort of near to medium term? Agriculture is doing not badly, but like anything that requires in the open environment, it, it will be stressed. Some of the stresses will be changes in moisture conditions and, and sunlight and in uh, the seasons, how long they are not. And that will have a direct effect on the crops and when you can plant them and, and when you can harvest them and what crops you can grow in different places. But equally important is, and, and there was a CCA study done just recently that showed that a secondary effect is that as the climate change, so does the things that live in the climate. So the bugs, the pests, the diseases that attack our plants and animals that we cultivate for human food will change. And so there's a perpetual challenge to our productive capacity by the existing environment and by the changes that are coming forward in the next while. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea of using NBTs, new breeding techniques for crops, so that they can better adapt to climate change. So what are these new breeding techniques? New is in the eye of the beholder in many <laughs> ways. You know, farming started by people just looking around and saying, hey, that looks like I could eat that. And we just selected. And eventually we pressed through better selections into better crops and better animals that met our, our agronomic and uh, dietary needs. We now can do that much more scientifically and, mu and much more precisely. We used to have forced breeding, then we added in a bunch of mutagenic techniques where we just sort of scramble things and see if we got anything interesting. We've now moved to being able to cut and paste, which was the GMO model. The current stage, and I don't think it's the end stage of science in this world, is that we can now go in and edit letters. So every plant animal microbe is driven by a, a whole bunch of paired, bundled pairs of genetic material. And in the past, we used to have to cut out huge chunks and put them in and hope that we got it in the right place in the right way and it did what we wanted. And it usually got knock-on effects that you weren't expecting. Now we can go in and change the letters and we can turn bits of the genetics on and off and that becomes much more precise. Yeah. So people will have probably heard of CRISPR as a technology that allows you to do this very precise gene editing. So when it comes to making crops that are better able to adapt to climate change, how would something like CRISPR fit into that? It's one of the bundle of editing tools that's there. I mean, essentially, somebody would identify, either a farmer or a public scientist would identify a trait in a plant or an animal or even a microbe that's not doing what we want. Okay. We would then go in and the first thing you need is the sequence. So it's it's not like you can do it blind. You need to have a lot of data and a lot of information that predates this snipping and editing function. And we found when we were doing DNA uh, cutting and pasting in the GMO world that sometimes when you took a gene out and turned it over and put it back in, it did ju just the opposite of what it was doing before. And so th that's that's the goal is to figure out what matters to farmers and to consumers and for the environment, then going in and targeting that specific trait, be it resistance to sunlight or resistance to a pathogen, a virus, or be it resistance to an animal, an insect that eats the leaves or eats the material and sort of d degrades the quality of the product. <laughs> Could the promise of this be not only that on the one hand, you're creating crops that can better adapt to climate change, like something that can withstand greater heat, but perhaps also crops that don't contribute as much to climate change, for example, like rice that produces less methane or something like that? There's a lot of interest in figuring out how can we use crops to, to not only achieve our food needs, but also to offset any downsides for the environment, but, but in some cases actually to remediate parts of the environmental system. And the genetics by itself can do some of that, 
by changing the shape and size of roots, for example, which stay below ground after you've harvested them, and they become organic matter that locks in carbon and other things. How they, they interact with the microbes around the plant and, and what kind of secondary effects will be there. You know, plants are living organisms. They give off gases and take in gases. And so sometimes you, how you change the genetics can change the effect of the crop. Speed of, of growth is sometimes a big one. So, you know, the, the faster you can grow with less nutrients, the less pressures on the, the natural environment. And that's, for cultivated crops, that's important, but these things are also used for trees and algaes and other things that may have much more specific environmental and, and climate effects than, than the foods we're trying to eat. Mm -hmm. As you know, many people are uncomfortable with the idea of GMOs, genetically modified organisms. So how is gene editing different from that? There's sort of two schools of thought. In many ways, it's the same argument about GMOs just passed forward. The question is, is it different and how different? Most regulators around the world have operated on the basis that if it's something you could have done by just pushing the plants together through crossing naturally, you know, pre-GMO technologies, and that all you've done is use a different way to get there, they have little concern about that. There's light regulation there. And okay. many consumers say that's not as big a concern as taking a gene from another species and moving it across into a target species. So that transgenic part that really caused angst in parts of the world market, not all of it, but significant parts and created stressors not only between regulators, but within the, the trade system where we had to differentiate and sell. And we used to sell to anybody who would, would be consuming our product. Now we have, for certain product categories, we have to segment and sell to only those that will accept the technology. Mm -hmm. Like the EU, I think, is more stringent in certain respects. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth pointing out, the EU has, up until this point, deemed that gene-edited technologies, whether they're doing anything particularly novel or not, are going to be treated and regulated as if they were GMOs, which means that they will have a, a much longer and more costly process to get to the market. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. Maybe it just slows things down. But these crops are changing every three to five years. These aren't one and done. You know, most seeds are turned over in the more industrialized parts of agriculture in, in as short as three years. Wow. So if the regulatory system takes four or five years, it sometimes means nobody's ever going to look to move product into that market. Yeah. As I understand it, back in May, the federal government announced that gene edited seeds would be allowed without independent safety assessments as long as they don't have any foreign DNA from another species or are designed to be pesticide resistant. What do you think of that move? I mean, you have to be careful to say it, it, it's the seed industry is heavily regulated, whether it's GMO or not. Okay, yeah. Every seed, every candidate variety that comes into the market in Canada goes through multiple years of seed trials. It's it's evaluated for its efficacy. And then there's a there's a review committee of 20 or 30 people who look at it and say, we don't like this aspect of it. And so we're not going to approve it or we're only going to approve it for regional use. So even if there's no regulation that's health and safety, there's still a lot of regulation at the industrial level because they want seeds that are effective and are going to be useful. There's also self-selection. The breeders and the scientists that are developing seeds for different product markets are mindful of what those markets will tolerate. And so some product categories where advanced technologies could be used, the industries have said, we're not going to use, for example, transgenes. There are, there are whole parts of Canadian agriculture that could be using it, but have chosen not to because they think it will have effect on their ability to export. And I think that's the same thing we're seeing in the in the terms of the uh, gene editing. We did a survey uh, last year, I think it was, of, of public breeders in Canada. 
and there's about 150, 200 of them that are, are working at universities and in public labs, and ask them, are you using gene editing? Most of them have looked at it, beta tested it. Some of them actually even use it to do pre-breeding work. So they, they know what trait they want. They go and use the technology. They find it works, but then they don't stop. They don't push that to the market. They go back and recreate that event using techniques that are not involving transgenes or gene editing. Huh. You know, the, the breeders themselves, partly because of the industry signals and partly because their funders are saying this is a useful research tool, but it's not a tool to take products to market. I'm Nora Young, and right now my guest on Spark is Peter Phillips, founding director of the Center for the Study of Science and Innovation Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. We're talking about how gene editing and other new breeding techniques are starting to be used to develop climate change-resistant crops. And along with that comes regulation and public acceptance. When I started my career a long time ago, people didn't really talk about how their food was regulated. And over time, the regulations have got sharper and tighter. And, and so most foods now, they look at, does it work? Uh, is it going to work and under what conditions and where? They look at whether it introduces any environmental effects. So is it going to change at the plot level, the ecology of the micronutrients and the plants and animals and competitors in that space? And then at, at the ecosystem level. You know, if you do it at, at a 10 meter by 10 meter space, that's one effect. But if you put it on millions of hectares, what's the effect then? They also look at health and safety effects. So does it have nutritional changes to the food? And does it have compositional changes? So is it, is it changing the, the underlying balance between fiber and protein? And interestingly, anything that substantially changes a food, in, in Canada especially, regardless of how you build it, is going to be regulated. Right. I know you co-authored a, a paper in 2021 that looked at expert opinions on the regulation and potential impacts of gene editing. So what did you find? They're excited about what they can do. They can produce more food for us. They can uh, reduce the environmental footprint. They can make people wealthy. And generally, people who are experts, they, they have more confidence in the, the products and the technologies they're using. At the other end of the chain, there's citizens and consumers. But you know, most of us don't know what we're talking about. So we're, we're looking for proxies. We're looking for, for signals. And the regulators are trying to create a system that will manage risks, but facilitate innovation. And so that there's this creative tension between people who are excited to move forward quickly, people who are hesitant and saying, I need some clarity and confidence that I'm not going to be affected in any adverse way. And smack in the middle is the regulator. But presumably there is some risk? I mean, ecosystems are, are complex. How do we know that there aren't going to be unforeseen negative impacts, you know, down the road, five, 10 years even? There's always possibilities of risks in everything. In what we did in the past and what we've been doing, we're doing today and what we're talking about doing in the future. I, I think the main thing that I've learned as I've worked with regulators in Canada and around the world is that, that it's not a one and done. It's not like we, we make a decision in January this year, this coming year, and, and nobody ever looks at it again. There's all kinds of people watching and, and observing and reporting on, on exceptions. And so most of the time that the subtle things that people are most worried about are caught at some point. And these things are not, you know, they're, they're not irreversible in the sense that we release them and that they have an existence beyond our, our choice. If a seed isn't working the way we want, 
it, it's not cheap and it's not easy, but we can remove it from the market. Are gene editing technologies, are they proprietary or is this technology kind of, for lack of a better term, open source? Can anybody use them? The core technologies that, that we're talking about all have some property claims against them through patents and, and trade secrets. Some of them have have a lot of know-how attached to them. And the people that really know how to make these technologies work often are in teams and in communities. And, and if you're not part of the team, you just don't know how to use the thing correctly. So there's some barriers, but they're not significant. The good thing about this technology versus GMOs, which we use sort of as a comparator sometimes, is that GMOs, because of the regulatory system and because of the science involved in it, you had to be large. You know, if you look at all the varieties and, and traits that were introduced, and it's, we're into the thousands now around the world, only about two or three of them were ever brought out by an entrepreneurial or a public lab. Almost all of them were the multinationals. They, they might have started but from a university lab, but eventually they sold off to a multinational because it was just so expensive to get to market. These have a low, have low, lower barriers to entry. And so GMOs, the ballpark estimate was you needed somewhere upwards of 100 million hectares of area that you'll plant to that seed to consider investing money in that trait development. For this, the estimate is that it might be as low as 2 million hectares around the world. Oh, wow. So all of a sudden, all those things that we could have done, but didn't make economic sense, now start to make some more economic sense. And, and, and it, we're not there yet because this is still you know, really early stages in the adoption of this technology. But over time, you'll see it, it adopted into a whole bunch of different areas. And, and we're already in many ways seeing that. You look at GMOs, they're in corn, soy, cotton, canola. You know, they're, they're in large area crops, mm. whereas the ones that we see that have already entered the market, you know, avocados, mixed greens, the Arctic apple, which is one of the Canadian contributions, uh, mushrooms, you know, you know, these are small area crops. Yeah. And just finally, beyond creating crops that can respond to climate change, how do you think this kind of innovation, these kind of tools can help with global food security just more broadly? They're part of the solution. I'd be the first to admit the food insecure people that we worry about, somewhere between 700 and 900 million people who are subject to so much limitation in their food supplies that they have stunting and, and it affects their ability to, to work productively. Those people are to some extent beyond reach of the current global food system. They're often self, self-sufficient farmers. And that's why they, when their product fails, they're hungry. When they have too much, they don't benefit from it because they don't have nowhere to sell it. So the pulling down our food insecure parts of the world is going to take more than technology and more more volume. It's going to require some changes in providing uh, the incomes that people can use to buy this, integrating people better into local and regional markets, helping with land tenure policies in some parts of the world. You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of things, but this is part of the puzzle. And without it, the others become more difficult. Peter, thanks so much for your insights on this. My pleasure. Peter Phillips is a distinguished university professor emeritus of public policy at the University of Saskatchewan. Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're looking at surprising new uses for DNA tech and the questions they raise for our human future. So gene editing seems like a promising but still debated tool for climate change adaptation, but it needs to be closely monitored. 
we need to be very careful with this kind of interventions and to periodically monitor it in terms of short-term, medium-term, long-term impact. This is Chidi Ogwamanam. He's the University Research Chair in Sustainable Bioinnovation, Indigenous Knowledge Systems, and Global Knowledge Governance, and a full professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Chidi's thought a lot about equity and the proper scope for intellectual property in global food systems. How should we govern how these technologies are actually used in practice, and how should they work alongside traditional knowledge and farmer expertise? After all, they exist in the context of an international food system and the different values, politics, and players in that system. Like most technologies, I can even start with um, things like uh, energy-efficient technologies uh, before I get into this agricultural space. Since uh, 26 years ago, when we had the Kyoto Protocol for the reduction of greenhouse gas, uh, what you saw was that... um, for that period of time, most green energy technologies and patents were issued to nine countries. And, and, and what this means to you or to us is to say that, well, these are the countries that are the biggest emitters. And they have gone ahead now to kind of fence off the technology for climate change mitigation. For countries in the global south who are in desperate need of intervention, they cannot have access to this technology. So what this means essentially is to say that most technologies will always prioritize those who have proprietary rights over them. And and in this case, it's not going to be any different because the priority is they are focusing on the big agricultural crops like potatoes, tomatoes. You could be thinking about cabbage, be thinking about so many of those that have economic value. But what about traditional land races, traditional crops uh, that are consumed in the remote parts of the world in the global south? Those are not going to be part of the priorities. Uh, The last time I checked, there's a lot of crops that are really being targeted for the application of this technology. And if you look at them, they are still those dominant economic crops. And they are the ones that the big industries and corporations have been able to to develop over the years and now building upon this new technology. So access to technology is a big deal, particularly in a time of transition like this. So what would need to happen in order for technologies like CRISPR to be applied to crops that are more commonplace in in the global south? Very good question. The, The whole idea is, let's be clear, climate change is an existential crisis. And every intervention around climate change, in my opinion, particularly in relation to green energy and now to CRISPR and such technologies that will really help to mitigate the negative consequences of climate change, they should not be subjected to strict proprietary control or gatekeeping. And if you ask me, they are global public goods and we cannot weigh them on the specifics of market economic metrics. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about intellectual property when it comes to agriculture? Like, what are some of the IP issues in the global context as we look at climate change resistant strains, like whether that's through gene editing or more traditional techniques? Well, intellectual property is a big deal. And depending on where you look at it from, some will tell you that it encourages innovation. And that has always been the major argument. Without intellectual property, innovators will not go to work and so on and so forth. 
But then the question we ask, what is the value of innovation when you are only innovating for 1% of the global population, as we see in the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, 90% of research dollar is pumped into diseases that only affect 1% of the global population. That really doesn't add up. So essentially, when you look at intellectual property, there is need for incentivizing innovation for those who innovate. But then access to that innovation, there is no need boxing in innovation inside a place and not allow it to make social impact. So intellectual property in the agricultural space has always been, let's say, starting from breeding. People would develop uh, new strains of crops and they can get plant breeders' rights. Uh, they can get patents depending on what method of technology they have applied. And when they do, they have monopoly over these seeds and uh, the products of this innovation. And of course, through technology transfer and licensing and patents, they begin to now uh, make it available to those who can afford it. And this has also worked within the biotechnology and life sciences uh, uh, convergences of industry, what we call the agrobiotechnology complex. And it is a close-knit industry, tightly regulated proprietary regime that does not tend to have the capacity to really uh, make impact in the lived realities of the people in the remote parts of the world. Mm. And let me be clear, you do not innovate in isolation. Most of these new breeds of plants have been targets of continued traditional knowledge, innovation, and practices. So the whole concept of genetic engineering sounds really scientific. But rural communities all over the world, women go to farm, they continue to select carefully because of threats they have found. And over the years, and they begin to now curate a certain kind of strain that has potential. And so those people who play in the, in the realm of science and technology and laboratory agriculture, if you like, are not doing those in isolation. They are piggybacking on what other knowledge systems have done. Mm. And so using intellectual property as both legal tool and a tool of power, we tend to exclude those who contribute to this global basket of knowledge. Because frankly, there is no basis for innovation that cannot impact the greatest majority of the people in a time of need and crisis. Mm -hmm. So do you think that technologies like gene editing can work alongside and in combination with traditional knowledge in agriculture? There is no reason it cannot happen. If we are intentional or deliberate about the process of designing this, what happens over the years is that when new technologies are developed, like in the time of um, of green revolution, uh, you bring high-yielding varieties and give it to women in rural areas. And uh, through that, they abandon their local land races that were more resilient. And, this, and recently, we went into genetic engineering, where we flip the meaning of seed. A seed is something that has an inherent capacity for regeneration. But nowadays, we have seeds that are genetically engineered so that they would not be used to go back to the farm. And you deprive that seed, the essence of its existence. And, and so this is what happens when you have two knowledge systems coexisting. It is important that they all leverage the values the other bring. 
In time of crisis, we may need high-yielding varieties for farming situations and for war situations. But for purpose of sustainability, we need land races that are really the theater of genetic foundation of every other thing that has been built. So when you use one to undermine the other, you put power in the hands of those who have proprietary rights over the ones that are really genetically engineered. And you completely decimate those who could also be the very support base. Because, I mean, when you genetically modify crops or seeds, the tendency is that they are susceptible to diseases. They are very vulnerable. And more importantly, you put control of them in the hands of corporations or proprietary rights holders. And if there is any catastrophe at all, there is no backup. So that is why I say we have to have a robust plural epistemic coexistence. Traditional knowledge is resilient. It has proven to be so. And new technologies have really, really benefited from contributions of traditional knowledge. Mm -hmm. And when one is used to wipe out the other because of economic consideration, because of legal consideration, because of power plays, then we are in a very serious danger. And that is what is happening in the agricultural space for the, for the most part. And so is the risk that if we view technologies like gene editing in isolation, that we run the risk of damage to, to biodiversity, for example? Yes. Um, and the gene editing, to be fair, in relation to the, the, the very old genetic engineering practices, there are very subtle differences because in gene editing, you are working within the genome of the same species. You are not making an interspecies intervention. You are not even using transgenes. So if you ask me, CRISPR or gene editing tends to be a more tempered way of uh, genetic uh, modification unlike um, good old genetic engineering, where you can take genes from an animal into a plant or from a plant into an animal, or you can use synthetic genes, and yet the whole process is not targeted and you cannot have a sense of a guaranteed outcome. So this one is a little more tempered, but yet having said that, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have all its own risks. Like I told you, this kind of technology needs to be continuously ethically monitored in terms of short-term, medium-term, and long-term consequences as a continuous matter. Chidi, thanks so much for your insights on this. My pleasure. Chidi Ogwamanam is University Research Chair in Sustainable Bioinnovation, Indigenous Knowledge Systems, and Global Knowledge Governance, and a full professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. If you're like me, all this talk about gene editing has you thinking about applications for human beings and why that's both hopeful and scary. In Canada, genetically modifying reproductive cells or embryos is illegal, so no so-called designer babies. But there are still legal and ethical issues around gene editing and other DNA-related technologies. Earlier this month, the FDA in the U.S. authorized two new treatments for sickle cell disease. One of those is a CRISPR gene-editing-based approach. Now, sickle cell disease affects about 200 million people around the world, so this is huge news. But it also points to how quickly the technology is evolving and the need to get the legal framework right. 
It's terrific news for a population that has had very few options up until now. So in particular, African-American populations in the United States, also Hispanic American populations. This is Glenn Cohen. He's James A. Atwood and Leslie Williams Professor of Law at Harvard University, where he specializes in bioethics and the law. He just wrote a paper on the sickle cell gene editing decision. Particularly African-American populations really haven't had a lot of good options, but now they do have a good option in these, although these are very serious medicines and the way they're administered is complicated. It's also going to be very expensive. So there's real questions about whether people are going to get access to this. Yeah. So human germline editing is illegal in Canada, meaning you can't alter the cells of a human or embryo in a way that would affect descendants. But what do you think some of the major kind of legal and ethical questions are when it comes to gene editing of somatic cells? Yeah, that's a very important distinction to draw here is that we're not talking about editing a human genome in a way that will be passed on to future generations. We're talking about making a change to the cells of individuals, which is still serious business. So when it comes to the somatic, I think the biggest issues are the risks involved. Uh, These therapies often require a treatment similar to chemotherapy, and they really do quite a lot to the body to be able to be receptive to it. Uh, The questions about the costs and access, so questions about distributive justice, I think are the other big category of questions to deal with. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How do you start to address questions of access and equity when it comes to gene editing, especially if some of these procedures are going to be extremely expensive and very intensive? And they are very expensive. I just want to underline that. that One of these has been priced or the ounce price would be about $3.1 million per patient, the other $2.2 million per patient. So this is astronomical. Now, to be clear, we often think in medicine about cost effectiveness because the question is not just are they expensive, but are they good value? And ICER, which in the United States is responsible, it's a nonprofit that rates the cost effectiveness uh, of various treatments, estimated something around $2 million in terms of the cost effect for this kind of treatment. So one of them is at least priced pretty close to what ICER predicted. But that's still a lot of money. Even if it turns out over the lifetime, it's a huge benefit for the person and also a huge cost savings in terms of not going to the emergency room, for example, living longer, pain-free. So the real question is, if there's a lot of value, which a lot of us think there is a lot of value here, how do we get health systems in a position where they can pay for this? And if the benefit is across the entire lifetime, Is it a problem that you have to pay for these things up front? And there have been some thinking about kind of innovative ways of kind of funding this, like medical mortgages, uh, performance and outcome-based pricing, where you get reimbursed kind of yearly based on how the patient is doing rather than all at once. But these are challenging, and these are challenging for both private healthcare systems, like much of what we have in the U.S., but also the public ones we have in Canada and elsewhere in the world to figure out how to pay for this. Yeah. Is it possible that the the treatment will become less expensive as time goes on, though? I mean, it's almost certainly going to become less expensive as time goes on, right? Most drugs and most treatments, there's a period of time in which they are uh, kind of, they're a pioneer and they essentially are protected by patent exclusivity and then they become a generic. But it takes a while to get there. Now, even there, I will say places like Canada, where uh, a lot of the uh, therapies and the payments for therapies are bargained for by the provincial payers or the national payer, we might have an opportunity to see in Canada lower prices than what will be charged in the United States. That's kind of a trend across the world. The U.S. tends to pay the most and other countries less. But I will say that a couple of countries have already tried to bargain a little bit on these uh, therapies, and they haven't been nearly as successful as they have been in terms of getting lower prices for drugs and other small molecules. 
Mm-hmm. It seems likely that as this general gene editing technology improves, there'll be a push, at least from some, to allow for germline gene editing, for example, to treat rare diseases at the embryo stage. If that should happen from a bioethics point of view, what sort of regulation should be in place to, for instance, avoid eugenics or, or to ensure safety? Yeah. So I, again, I think the germline is uh, a much more complicated and much more ethically fraught space, to be completely honest about it. Uh, among the things to worry about would be even if we can do it successfully, so say it's safe, let's say it's effective, let's say it's cost effective, is it something we feel comfortable doing? Because we will be making decisions about changing the genetics of future generations who don't have uh, an opportunity to consent or to say no. So you're making decisions. Now, each of us who reproduce makes a whole bunch of decisions about the future generations, including bringing them in. So maybe that's not a knockdown, drag out argument. But there are people who think that the human germline should be thought of as something a little bit more holy or more consistent. And then mucking around with it, even for good purposes, uh, is problematic. Then, as you say, there's other questions about what are the appropriate uh, targets for intervention? Should they only be extremely serious diseases? Should they only be diseases that will lead to a very shortened life? Then there's just the question about people with disabilities who I think have legitimate concerns about that when they hear about gene editing, they expect that they are the people who we want to gene edit away. So how do we decide that? Who decides it? And then who evaluates this? It's a real problem because we don't have kind of agencies across the world already set up for this. Because as you say, at the moment, in most of the Western world, and in fact, most of the world in general, it's just flat out uh, unlawful to do this kind of work. Yeah. Beyond gene editing, there are also questions about DNA and human privacy. So where do you see, I realize this is a large question, but where do you see the major issues emerging in human DNA and privacy? Yeah, so I'm amazed at how many people are just giving away information about their genetics uh, for free, right? There's often a joke that if you can't tell what the product is, guess what? You're the product in a sense. And we saw this with recent allegations for some of the big uh, gene sequencing, the kinds of stuff you see advertised on TV. We've seen privacy breaches and the like where people have had access to some data. And certainly in the national security world and the armed forces world, there's actually some concern about letting uh, people be sequenced because the concern would be that if somebody could develop, for example, a bioweapon, it might be tailored to a particular individual or the like. So I do think this privacy is important. Uh, that said, there's all sorts of forms of information about us out there. Mm-hmm. My shopping uh, habits, my Amazon and my web browsing and my purchasing habits. In many ways, the real question is, what are the risks to me? In what ways would my life go worse if somebody had access to this information? And I'm not always sure that it's the genetic information we should be as worried about as other kinds of information. Now, maybe that means we need more general privacy protections. But there was a period of time where bioethicists talked about our DNA like, our future secret diary, that we kept it locked up and somebody would read our diary and know all this sort of stuff. And I do think that was a little bit um, naive in terms of the way the world has worked. Yes, information about genetics is very important and for some people, extremely important because they have a rare disease. But for most of us, genetic information is one piece of information about us that allows people to make predictions. And we should be worried about how those predictions are used with genetics, but also with everything else. Yeah. Glenn, thanks so much for your insights on this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Glenn Cohen is James A. Atwood and Leslie Williams Professor of Law at Harvard University. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samarui Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Merdad Hajibubai, Peter Phillips, Chidi Ogwamanam, and Glenn Cohen. 
Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.